Welcome back. We discussed a lot last time in Register Part 1, so a recap of the most important points is in order, or at least it'll help us focus this second part. We said that the element of register has two properties. The first is simply the highness or lowness of pitch. Or... This is simply pitch level. The other property of register is that the range of these pitches from high to low or low to high isn't just a continuous drop or rise of pitch. The range is divided by smaller ranges of eight pitches we call octaves. And these eight-note ranges are in some sense recognizably similar to each other. If, for example, I play an eight-note scale at the bottom range of the piano, You can hear that the relationship of those notes, the familiar sound of do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, is the same sound continuing upward another eight notes starting from the last and highest note. The relationships between the notes have to be analogous or equal, higher and lower, for the scale to be recognizable. The only difference between them is that with each one, the scale is pitched higher. Otherwise, they're the same. This sameness we call octave equivalence, the second property of register. We can further subdivide this second property and describe it another way. If the octaves sound exactly the same, starting from any C upward to the next C, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, or to use the English spelling C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, it means that all the C's all the D's All the E's, all the F's, all the G's, all the A's, and all the B's are also in some sense heard as the same notes. Or rather the same note, an octave higher and higher and higher. Their similarity means that they fall into a class together across all the octaves. So we categorize them as pitch classes. The C's as a group are the pitch class C the D's, the pitch class D, and so on with the others. In other words, if we were to express octave equivalence going by one note at a time, as opposed to all the notes of the octave, we get seven pitch classes. Seven and not eight, because both C's are part of the same pitch class, so we don't count them twice. If we put all seven pitch classes together, we get a hypothetical single octave, naturally because pitch class doesn't distinguish between the pitch level of the note, whether it's this C or this C, but the fact that it's some C, any C, will do. This produces a paradox we also mentioned last time, which is very important to remember. Any note that sounds is, technically, heard in two ways in a register-sensitive way and a register-insensitive way. So that if I play Happy Birthday in a low range of the piano, and then play it higher, 
Just like Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Ti, Do, you can hear that it's the same melody. That sameness is the register insensitive aspect. So that even if we sing Happy Birthday together, but in different octaves due to our different voice ranges, we don't care which octave each of us sings it in. Since we sing the same pitch classes, we're only paying attention to the register insensitive and hypothetical octave. Melodies live in this register insensitive or octave equivalent realm of music. On the other hand, if there's a particular effect the composer is trying to create, or an image he's trying to render in sound, as for example when Wagner was trying to show the blinding wash of sunlight when Brunhilde is looking directly into the sun above, The exact octave or register is important, and it's therefore register-sensitive. Of course, we would recognize the music if it were played in a lower octave too, because all the notes are part of one pitch class or another, but it's the pitch level, the first property of register, that counts here. It has to be pitched high for the effect to come out right. Musical effects, therefore, are usually very register-sensitive. The reason a visual effect is possible to make into music like this is that register is a dimension, the vertical dimension, in music. The first property, pitch level, matches the visual sense of height in sound. The second property, octave equivalence or pitch class, levels it again to a single, though hypothetical, octave. The paradox is that, say, the higher you go, the notes rise in pitch level, but in the hypothetical octave they just repeat the same octave over and over, and so a melody, which lives in this second domain, is preserved by octave equivalence. Happy birthday is happy birthday in all octaves, however high or low its pitch. In order to visualize that the octaves are equal except for their pitch, we use the analogy of looking into two facing mirrors. Of course, two mirrors actually keep flipping the universe back to front with every reflection, so you see your face in one, then the back of your head, then your face again, but ignore that for a second. Just imagine an infinite row of identical images. The farther into the reflection, the smaller the image, but still the identical universe. Similarly, the more notes go up, the higher the pitch, but still identical the octave. Because pitch classes give us a single hypothetical octave, naturally we don't need to measure its register because it doesn't have one. By definition, it's unmeasured register. But if we go by pitch level, we do need to specify which octave we're talking about. In classical music, there are seven octaves in the range of the highest to lowest instruments of the orchestra. The first octave is from C1 to C2. The second from C2 to C3. Third from C3 to C4. Fourth from C4 to C5. 
fifth from C5 to C6, sixth from C6 to C7, and finally seventh from C7 to C8, which is the last note on the piano and the edge of the piccolo's upper range. This is very useful for orchestral music. But there's also a way of measuring register by the human voice ranges, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass, about which a lot more later. We heard the two properties of register in combination in the example of Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries. The string motif is register-sensitive, as the dramatic effect comes from repeating it up the octave twice. But the melody is register-insensitive, because it would be recognizable in any octave. That's a summary of the technical points we discussed last time. Let's continue. Speaking of summary, something else is happening when Wagner repeats a motive in different octaves in the Ride of the Valkyries. By playing the motive in different octaves, the whole register space is being articulated like a preface or introduction. In musical grammar, it's saying, this is the range the music is going to be in. The same thing happens when pieces are finishing, in their codas. Running through the full range, grammatically summarizes what came before, as though saying, we're closing up the sound space. By the way, that's true whether the music is fast, slow, loud, soft, or whatever. It happens in many contexts because register is also used as an element of form. Even Debussy's Claire de Lune does this at the end. the summary of all the registers the music touched before. Because there are thousands of notes in a range of seven octaves, there's a problem of attention. How do you know what to focus on? We don't pay attention to different registers at random. Usually, melody is what guides us. Melody is the thing at the center of attention. An accompaniment is perceived in the periphery of that attention. Accompaniment can even seem like background noise when you're passively listening. But as you listen to different parts, deeper relationships become apparent. The question of which register plays the tune, and which the accompaniment, is a good starting point for broadening the scope of listening in this way. It might be interesting to go back some 400 years to the late 16th and early 17th centuries and trace the styles forward, asking what's happening in each register in the music of the time, or to put it another way, since that's getting it slightly backwards, how has each age reflected its musical taste in how and where it likes to hear melody and accompaniment? That naturally deals with register as we've examined it, and how the two aspects, P 
pitch level and octave equivalents have been handled by composers. This is not a comprehensive history of style by any means, but you can get familiar with the broad styles quickly, as some general features are unmistakable. The thing that strikes me the moment I hear the vocal music of the 16th century is its ornateness, the sheer life that pours out of every bar of it. That's the sound of 16th century France's most brilliant and charismatic church composer, Clément Jeanquin. He was the choir master at Luzon Cathedral. He led a scandal-ridden life, was fired from his position because of his relations with, quote, women of ill repute during Holy Week, and though he was by turns imprisoned, punished with fasts, and excommunicated, he was apparently an indomitable personality, too talented to be ignored or kept from the priesthood. He was the main exponent of a French genre known as the chanson, a song written for several voices on a secular text, one of the most celebrated of which we just heard. It's called Le Chant des Oiseaux, the Song of the Birds, and that was its first verse. It's full of humor, and like a lot of chansons, the text is rich in double entendre and gets richer still by the way he sets it to music. It's about spring calling birds into the mating season. Connotations are everything here, and so much of it is untranslatable from French. Each verse has a different bird making its song, and there's perhaps a thinly veiled reference to the sexual lives of certain individuals. I'm still trying to figure that out, but the first stanza runs something like, quote, Wake up, you hearts, still fast asleep. The god of love calls you. On this first day of May, the birds will do wonders. To put all dismay out of your mind, uncover your ears, and faridadidon, you'll be all joy, for the season is good. End quote. Second stanza. Quote, you'll hear at my call a sweet music. What will the thrush sing? And the blackbird too. In a clear voice, titty pity pity, laugh and enjoy. At my call, everyone abandons themselves. Here is where connotations in French tell. The word for thrush in French is roi mauvais, which also means bad king. There's a soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. One voice to each register. Who sings the melody here and who the accompaniment? They imitate each other at different times. Listen closely. Does one voice lead or follow more than the others? <laughs> 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 
there's no melody in one voice and accompaniment in the others. In other words, there's no designated function specific to register. This is because all voices are made alike, basically, except for their pitch. There's no reason to treat one voice as less flexible or capable than another. There are some differences between male and female voices, but not that much. My favorite verse is the last one. Quote, Back, Master Cuckoo, leave our nest. Everyone sends you away, for you're nothing but a traitor. Cuckoo, cuckoo, in other nests you lay when no one's called you. End quote. There's perhaps another double meaning here. The word for nest is chapitre, which is also an assembly of religious people. And the line, everyone sends you away, is very clever, because the expression to keep away from people in French literally translates as to be an owl. Notice the immediate connection between the rhythm of the words and the rhythm of the music. Music of the Renaissance was primarily vocal, whether secular or sacred, although sometimes it had instrumental accompaniment as well. This independence of voices was a representation of perfection, an ideal inherited from the Church. The voices are totally untrammeled by any hierarchy of roles with respect to their register. This is especially true in sacred music for the Mass. In this particular art, music reached the zenith in the late 16th century. At the summit of the church ideal sits the Italian composer Giovanni Palestrina, and his most famous piece is the Pope Marcellus Mass.
There's a sense of weightlessness from the absence of a regular phrase length, since each voice sings into the entrance of another in a different register. Palestrina's music especially glows with the otherworldly sound made of this uniformity, where each voice sings its own melody in its own register, in a rhythm free and independent from the others, but in harmony with them. It contrasts in this sense very sharply with the sound of Jeanquin's chanson, and the sincerity of religious feeling in it is still audible five centuries later. As the 16th century turned to the 17th, in secular songs, instruments began to restrict this freedom. The bass voice was increasingly doubled by a stringed instrument and another instrument that could play harmonies, like a lute, guitar, organ, or keyboard instrument. For example, John Dowland's beautiful song, Clear or Cloudy, which is written for five voices, might have the lower three voice parts played on instruments instead of sung making a duet with accompaniment. Two singers, a soprano and alto, sing naturally in the soprano and alto registers, while instruments play all the bass ones. This sound is the signature of the early 17th century, a primarily vocal music with one or more such instruments playing the lower parts. It's the germ of what becomes the Baroque style. But this means the music in the bass begins to sound less and less like vocal music especially when composers start writing directly for instruments. Unlike voices, instruments are not made alike, and more things than just pitch and range separates them. There is every reason why one instrument can play something more flexibly or easily than another. So writing directly for instruments begins to influence how songs are written. 
For example, another type of secular song for several voices that had flowered in the 16th century was called the madrigal. Madrigals were an Italian specialty, influenced by the French chanson as well as developing alongside it. But now in the early 17th century, Claudio Monteverdi's madrigal Zefiro Torna is written originally for two voices and instrumental accompaniment. Notice that the bass register is limited to a vamp. It repeats the same 4 plus 4 period over and over. An idea that comes from instrumental music. 1, 2, 3, 4. 1, 2, 3, 4. While the two voices maintain much of their freedom as before, and could have been written by Jean Can. More importantly, accompanied by instruments already means that there's a supportive and leading role. There's accompaniment in the bass and melody in the treble. Appropriately, it's in this age that opera was born, by the combined efforts of composers Monteverdi, Jacopo Peri, and a few others. The first operas were attempts to reconstruct ancient Greek theater. These magical composers wrote on the assumption that Greek drama was sung rather than spoken. Hence, much of the first complete opera that has survived, Monteverdi's Orpheus, sounds exactly like madrigals and shares its register concept. Instrumental music flourished alongside opera, and as we said, instruments are not alike. Generally, lower-pitched instruments take longer to sound than higher ones. Violins are on the whole more nimble than basses. 
so the limitation in the base register can be compensated for by allowing the upper registers the most spectacularly florid music ever written. Bass simple, treble spectacular. Thus, the Baroque. If you wanted venture capital in the 17th century, you'd do well to know Louis XIV. That's the sound of his personal composer and one of my favorites, Jean-Baptiste Lully. All composers for most of classical music's history were subjects of a monarch or dignitary. The word subject means literally throw under, a servant. As members of the working class, a musician's product owed a certain propriety to the patron who funded it. Lully was among the most fortunate, having Louis XIV's blank check to draw from, with the directive that he make it plain to anyone and everyone present that the never-ending visual splendor of Versailles had a sound to match. Historian Will Durant, with characteristic irony, writes of the construction of Versailles, quote, it was not to be so much a masterpiece of architecture as an invitation to live outdoors, amid nature tamed and improved by art, to breathe the fragrance of flowers and trees, to feast the eyes and fancied touch on classically sculptured forms, to hunt prey and women in the woods, to dance and picnic on the grass, to boat on the canal and the lake, to hear Lully and Moliere under the open sky. Here was a garden of the gods, built with the pennies of twenty million Frenchmen who would rarely see it, but who gloried in the glory of their king. It is pleasant to learn that except on royal occasions, the park at Versailles was open to the public. Of the king's relationship to Lully, Durant writes, quote, Louis raised Lully to the nobility as a secretary to the king. Other secretaries complained that this was too high a post for a musician, but Louis told Lully, I have honored them, not you, by placing a man of genius among them. End quote. It was also in this century that the orchestra, as a concept and an institution, was born. Thanks to Louis XIV's desire that music always be available at the palace, for the first time in Western history, there was a permanently assembled body of players one could call an orchestra. They were called Le 24 Violons du Roi the king's 24 vials. Up to this time, when composers wrote for many players, they wrote their music for the occasion first and went around finding the players to play them. But now, for the first time, the orchestra was already assembled and ready before the music for it was written. 
just as it still is today. Lully wrote sacred music, but most notably opera and ballet, due to Louis XIV's love of dance. The sound of this music is the close equivalent of the façade of Versailles and buildings like it. Now, I want to say again here that I'm not trying to set up a strict visual-to-auditory relationship. And I want to reiterate here, as everywhere in this short history, we're talking about general features. There are always exceptions, and there's always a level of resolution one can look from where every statement is wrong. But consider Versailles and other such buildings. The Baroque sound is roughly what you'd get if you consider what the registers are doing as an acoustic representation of a palace facade vertically. In the bass registers, a regular, stable structure of rhythm, suggesting solidity and permanence, and in the higher registers, all manner of ornament and fanfare. Lully would conduct this music with a huge staff, which he'd pound on the floor, keeping time. Will Durant again. Quote, Everything prospered for Lully till 1687. Then, while conducting, he accidentally struck his foot with the cane that he used as a baton. The wound, maltreated by a quack, developed gangrene, and the ebullient composer died at the age of 48. French opera still feels his influence. End quote. Naturally, other dignitaries throughout Europe imitated this orchestra at their courts, and it gradually became standard. Louis XIV is gone, but the orchestra remains, and, alas, still requires a king's check. If songs, chansons, madrigals, masses, and the like were the dominant forms of the 16th and 17th centuries, the dominant form of the 18th century Baroque was the fugue. Into the middle of the 18th century, when it counted most, as in church music, the ideal was still perfect independence and equality in all the parts. A fugue, as the name suggests, is two, three, or four short melodies that, quote, run away, passing from one voice in one register to another. A great example being Bach's Magnificat in D. In the fugue, by definition, what's played or sung in the soprano, alto, tenor, or bass is exactly alike. The short tunes will appear in the low register, say, as a bass, then again the high register as the tenor, low again as an alto, and high again as the soprano.
Bach is generally considered the pinnacle of this art of fugue and its independence of voices, equal to Palestrina, whom he probably studied, I don't even want to know how thoroughly. Each part is as independent as anything in the vocal music of the 16th century. However, in contrast to the 16th century forms, which were written for voices and sometimes played by instruments, Bach's fugues have a distinctly instrumental quality about them. They sound like they're intended first to be played rather than sung. In fact, they often sound like they take inspiration from the sort of line that would be played by a viola da gamba. Ask any experienced choral singer, and they'll be quick to tell you how merciless Bach is. His endlessly curving lines frequently don't leave them a moment to breathe. Bach died exactly in the middle of the 18th century and in the middle of the year, on the 28th of July, 1750. Traditionally, this is the year that musicologists mark as the end of the Baroque period. At about that time, a new style of music had formed that lasted for some three decades. It's called the Galant style, and it sounds like this. It's the world of easy listening. It makes no great demands, and its most distinguished practitioner was Johann Christian Bach, or J.C. Bach for short, one of Johann Sebastian's many and very influential sons. This is his Symphony in E-flat, the first of six symphonies that make up his Opus 18. The Galant was the basis of the classical style. The ornamental sound of the Baroque is pruned to simpler types of phrase. In the bass, the routine was to have either just strong beats or repeated notes to provide the slowest moving patterns, in the middle, like the tenor or alto registers, a shivering sound usually provided a faster motion. And in the alto and soprano registers, there was the melody, and that almost always means the violins. Already from the songs and madrigals of the 16th century to the 17th, you can sense the registers beginning to solidify in terms of what kind of music is written for them. Well, by the second half of the 18th century, the role of the music is fixed by register. The melody is nearly always in the soprano, or is the highest pitched part, and the lower ones are all accompaniment in some way, 
and varied by register. They might become very sophisticated accompaniment, but accompaniment they are nevertheless. Listen to any symphony of this period till the end of the 18th century when the fully mature, high classical style is formed, and 99 out of 100 times the part you sing will be in the violins. Like all composers in the late 18th century, Haydn and Mozart almost exclusively have their melodies in the highest register sounding, and their accompaniments are all variations of types established by the gallant. Of Haydn's 104 symphonies, only one or two of them begins a melody in a low or middle register, with something like accompaniment above it, and only for a short time. At the end of his career, when he was writing his symphony number 100 for London, this is still the sound. The art and entertainment is in how the rhythm you're hearing in the present phrase contrasts with the one coming after and the one before, not its emotional impact at the current moment. If you had an opening period like this, The point is to hear how its parts are split up, churned, repeated, and altered. Until it turns into another theme, like this. This is the high classical style, and its richness is in its phrase flexibility. Its purpose, if it has one, is the clever manipulation of the phrase. In order to accommodate this, on the whole, the kind of music in each register remains the same. In other words, the classical style restricts the role of the registers, but liberates in the area of phrase and period, or the horizontal dimension. It's a great arrangement of things, and you can't exhaust it. Everything in it, vertically and horizontally, reflects the Enlightenment age's love of proportion, balance, reason, poise, and order. Melodies are in the soprano where they can be clearly heard, and from there the lower the octave, the fewer the notes, so that everything above it resonates to produce its iconic, consistently bright sound. You could say its unspoken motto is if it's not Baroque, fix it in place. In this music, you always know where the music is coming from and where it's going. When it's coming to an end, 
it signals this with the violins playing a descending scale in the high register as a summary of their octave, which is where the melody has most likely been. Again, these are general statements. But even Haydn and Mozart, no matter how adventurous they got, didn't fool around with what type of music is standard to each register. These were the goalposts set by the Galant, and all composers obeyed them. And then came Beethoven. It's Beethoven who makes the change of register a central part of the musical argument. That is, the fact that something is in a certain octave is part of its expression, or even the reason why it's expressive. This is his Piano Sonata in F minor, Opus 57, also known as the Appassionata, or the Passion. Beethoven's entire output is filled with examples like this, where the behavior of the phrase is to travel in and out of all the available octaves. The opening phrase not only begins in the lowest octave and ends in another, but one register is answered by another all the way through. The registers contrast even more as Beethoven stops the rhythm in mid-period, as he does towards the close of the first section. The 
The accompaniment is so low it's almost inaudible. Just as it was getting high enough to be heard, the phrase vanishes, leaving a suspended trill in the high register, which now dives almost the entire length of the keyboard. And from the bottom register comes a new motive, rising an octave on each repeat. It's this repetition of phrases from the bass an octave higher and higher again that suggests a struggle for realization, as if they're trying to find the octave in which they can best sing out. This makes the drama. This is how Beethoven's music brings to mind the heroic and the tragic. The phrases of the melody have traversed some five or six octaves, from the trill that glided down the keyboard and the phrase that climbed back up with its rhythm of Pum, pa-pa-pa-pum, pa-pa-pa-pum. In closing the section, this wide space of registers is summarized. The summary is a melodic fragment descending an octave every time, until only the highest and lowest notes so far played are left. You can see how Beethoven has expanded the boundary of where the melody can be in terms of its pitch level. The generation before him kept it tightly in the high register. Hence, the register summary was at most a one-octave scale. But because Beethoven is using all the octaves, their summary becomes likewise dramatic. A gallant composer would never dream to write this way. By doing this, Beethoven introduced a vertical development through a period or section of music, and showed composers through the next two centuries what power could be derived from it. In other words, in addition to the development from phrase to phrase, there's also one from register to register. To show that this is standard with Beethoven no matter what the mood, let's look at his Sixth Symphony, which is another great example of this. If you recall, Beethoven took a segment of music at the start of the symphony and wrote it to be louder and softer. And because it was the same exact snatch over and over meant that only the dynamics gave the period any shape. You can plausibly associate the visual image of something coming closer and then distancing again in the crescendo and decrescendo. Dynamics, again, could be thought of as a third dimension of depth. What if you wrote a period changing the octave, that is, the register, with each repeat instead of the volume? That's what Beethoven does next. Here's the second theme.
Let's back up a second. Beethoven was trained in what we call the classical style. Note how this four-bar phrase had its origin in the opening theme. Just as it was practiced in the 18th century, it's been manipulated from the start. The opening motive was... And as it goes through the phrases, it repeats with slight changes. In the second phrase, it begins... Then it becomes a phrase itself by repetition. Until, finally, ends a phrase into the second theme. Now at the second theme, a classical composer would continue doing this, changing rhythm, splitting it up, etc. But Beethoven doesn't. He develops it by register, and of course instrumentation. The melody descends from the fifth octave of the orchestra to the fourth, to the third, to the second, or to put it another way, from the soprano to the alto to the tenor to the bass. Soprano, fifth octave. Alto, fourth octave. Tenor, third octave. Bass, second octave. At the same time, if you listen down into the bass, you'll hear a counter melody rise up. It sounds like this. The original melody continues into the extreme registers, first in the clarinet, then the flute, as the counter melody goes even lower, where the double basses play it. Imagine all this in the same octave. It would make just as little sense as that other phrase was if it was played all at the same volume, at the same dynamic. This is a perfect example of a composer making use of the register-sensitive and register-insensitive aspects. We recognize the melody as the same melody as it descends because of octave equivalence. But doesn't the melody's effect change subtly when it's played at a lower pitch level? One of the pleasures of this passage is the different shades of emotion it evokes each time it comes in a new octave. It's brightest at first in the fifth octave and gets more... more what? Well, use your own adjective. What does it suggest to you? Whatever it is, it's the same and not the same, moving and not moving. It's our infinite facing mirror reflections analogy again. As the melody descends, the pitch level falls, but because of octave equivalence, it doesn't move at all. We quickly notice the melody is preserved and listen right through the octave changes to pitch class, just as we can see the same object in a deeper and deeper reflection in the mirror. 
I mean, in other words, Beethoven has written this experiment right into his symphony. Pitch level relieves the monotony of this otherwise pointless repetition. He forces us to listen up and down as he made us listen to near and far by volume in the earlier passage. We like to think that composers express themselves in their music, or should. So it's astonishing to think that nearly all of classical music, until Beethoven's time, references something totally external to its author and even to music itself. For example, Haydn's personality might be glimpsed in his pieces, but his music doesn't sound different from his contemporaries. It's just much better. But if he had a tragedy or a crisis in his life, we wouldn't necessarily know it from his music. We might glimpse it if an operatic scene he was writing got close enough to capturing the emotion he felt and provided an outlet. But the plain fact is he was a servant who wrote for the pleasure of Hungarian royalty and was generally happy to do so. Because music always aimed to please a monarch, archbishop, duke, or emperor and serve the vision of his reign or institution, it expressed emotions only appropriate to the formality of that domain. The fixed role of the registers in the classical style was part of this formality. It's a bit like the formal language in a letter when addressing a king, whatever the sentiment in it. With Beethoven, for the first time, that formality is audibly missing. When Beethoven had his most personal tragedy, his deafness, the music he writes at the time tells us intimately how he felt. Beethoven came of age during the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror, and judging from his statements, he seemed temperamentally incapable of being a subject to anyone. Listening to his music, no images of royalty, empire, palace facades, or anything of the kind comes to mind. Human existence and its inward life seem to be his subject. Not to go too deep into Beethoven's life, but if isolation brings on confrontation with the self, Few composers in history have been as isolated in so many ways as Beethoven was. As a child, he was unhappy. As an adult, he was socially isolated because of his lack of grace and many off-putting eccentricities. Professionally, he was isolated partly because of his own rude demeanor and partly because of the jealousy of others, but also the still prevalent attitude toward musicians as servant-class people, while being without the secure patronage such as Haydn enjoyed. Romantically, he was isolated for many of the same reasons. And worst of all, due to deafness, he was isolated from the world of sound itself. To this is added the transition period in Europe during his lifetime, 
and the many forces of instability society exhibits at these times. Nietzsche, speaking about such isolation, says in his book on timely meditations, quote, Wherever there are great societies with governments and religions and public opinions, where there is a tyranny, in short, there will the lonely philosopher be hated, for philosophy offers an asylum, an inner sanctuary. But here too lurks the greatest danger. These men who have saved their inner freedom must also live and be seen in the outer world. They stand in countless human relations by birth, position, education, and country, their own circumstances, and the importunity of others. And so they are presumed to hold an immense number of opinions simply because these happen to prevail. Every look that is not a denial counts as an assent. Every motion of the hand that does not destroy is regarded as an aid. These free and lonely men know that they perpetually seem other than they are. While they wish for nothing but truth and honesty, they are in a net of misunderstanding, and that ardent desire cannot prevent a mist of false opinions from gathering round their actions. The continual bitterness of this gives them a volcanic character. They take their revenge from time to time for their forced concealment and self-restraint. Such lonely men need love and friends to whom they can be as open and sincere as to themselves, and in whose presence hypocrisy may cease. The most terrible weapon against unusual men is to drive them into themselves. Yet, there are always some demigods who can bear life under these fearful conditions and can be their conquerors. And if you would hear their melancholy chant, listen to the music of Beethoven. End quote. After his first two symphonies, in which he more or less minded his manners in the old style, Beethoven wrote this third one while aware he was going deaf. The history of the dedication reveals the principles that inspired the new sound. He first called it Napoleon and dedicated it to the general. Upon hearing that Napoleon had made himself emperor, he angrily renamed it Heroic Symphony to the memory of a great man. Thus it came to be called the Symphonia Eroica. And with it the symphony changed forever. It was no longer a genre with gallant features that were shared in common property among European composers. Judging from the symphonies after Beethoven and the remaining six by Beethoven himself, the symphony was now a personal statement as well. Composers' symphonic efforts in the 19th century shows that whether succeeding or failing even to write coherently, each composer strived for a unique style and concept of his own. The funeral march that is the second movement, which we just heard, hooks the listener in by what feels, to me, like a register tug. The violins begin in the middle, but before the first stress, the ear is yanked down into the first octave by the entrance of the double basses. A single bass note would not have drawn the attention down quite like this growl of three or four notes. What a contrast to the Galant style's bass, which is only there to emphasize strong beats for the benefit of the motion of the phrase above it.
Here the base register is a place and commands its own attention. It continues almost like a second melody. You wouldn't sing it because it's not exactly a melody. It's register sensitive because the effect is only possible in that octave. Yet it's something more than accompaniment. Meanwhile, the melody continues plangently above it on an oboe, and it keeps changing register too. What part of the music are these notes that evoke such an inner world? Are they a melody or an effect? The sound has what seems like a miraculous combination of register-specific effect and register-insensitive melody. As the melody moves, beat by beat, the sound of the instrumentation grabs the attention into the various octaves, high and low. As the ear tries to follow this huge vertical pitch space, the emotional impact of the moment is felt before the lines reveal themselves to be phrases and periods after all. Hence the more inward-turning mood than the comparatively formal and objective high classical style that was based on the galant. This is one of the main reasons why so many listeners feel Beethoven is speaking directly to them, individually, or echoing something of immense significance within them. In closing, I've argued that register, in addition to associating spatial height and sound, is one of the elements most responsible for eliciting a visceral or gut sensation, and that often the experience being referenced has to be talked about metaphorically. And while an examination of Beethoven's music shows that he reimagined every element, it might be meaningful that the composer most isolated altered music so much in this particular way. Perhaps another of Schumann's aphorisms reflects this. Quote, it doesn't matter how genius appears when it's present, whether in the depths, as with Bach, on the heights, as with Mozart, or simultaneously in the depths and the heights, as with Beethoven. End quote. This may sound too emotive and subjective a description to be taken seriously. You know, genius being present in the depths and the heights 
And after all, couldn't it have been the other way? Couldn't it have been in the heights with Mozart, in the depths with Beethoven, and simultaneously in the depths and heights with Bach, as opposed to Beethoven? I mean, it would have been just as good that way. But again, even the most poetic tangent touches some element of music clearly enough. And if you're thinking with them, occasionally even the 19th century's very inexact, sometimes, way of speaking about music can become intelligible in some sense. Isn't this at least in part referencing the influence of register in the three styles? From the dense mastery of Bach in the Baroque fugue, to the treble-heavy classical style with its gallant brightness, such as Mozart would write, to Beethoven's several octave body of sound? In any case, things change quite a bit after Beethoven, and there's still more to discuss here. But let's have another break, and when we come back, the third and concluding part of our discussion of register. <laughs> 